the director of the LA Tech Talent Pipeline at Bixel Exchange, hosted at the LA Area Chamber of Commerce. I think that there's a lot of excitement in the audience speaking on the panel. Really wanted to highlight the fact that there's a lot of opportunity around being able to bridge the gap between industry and employers. And I felt like that the audience was really receptive to that and looking into how can we create opportunities for job seekers, train them, and then get them into internships, apprenticeships, or jobs. So we've heard about what can be done. Now, what are we doing to get it done? And being able to think about, you know, who each of the different key stakeholders and what are their needs and how do we address them and then put a, a strategic action plan together to be able to start to create these opportunities and really start to bridge the divide between industry and education. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. We are back with our panelists and our moderator, Cliff Daniels, Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer of Methodist Hospital of Southern California, discussing emerging workforce trends and industry. And if you remember from last week, we left off with the hanging question of how to best assess millennials in the workforce. Here's Cliff Daniels to guide us through it. Let's talk about the, uh, the generational issue of our time. Millennials. Uh, many of you have tried to hire them. I've tried to hire them. And uh, they present their own skills, with their, their own challenges with their uh, mindset and uh, perspective of work balance and work lifestyle balance. I'll tell you one quick true life story here. About seven or eight years ago, I worked in another hospital that was a, a level two trauma center. And the two founding physicians of the practice, the trauma surgeons, were getting older and tired of taking all the call themselves 24-7 365 days a year. So I finally got them to relent and to bring in a new young trauma surgeon so that they could step back, take less call, and he could begin to take over the practice and they could eventually retire in two or three or four years. All the guy had to do, ready-made practice, didn't have to go out there and drum up business. He just had to come and work and take call. So we found this top-notch recruit out of a very prestigious program out of the University of Pittsburgh. And I was sitting in front of him. Oh, and let me add to the fact that the hospital was also willing to guarantee his income for two years. He couldn't have had a better opportunity. So I'm sitting in, sitting in front of him, meeting him for the first time. And literally, maybe the second words out of his mouth after I explained this opportunity to him was, well, you know, when I get here, I need to take a month off so I can go climb Kilimanjaro. <laughs> I couldn't make that up. 
I couldn't make that up. And I brought that news to the senior partner of the trauma group. We did not hire the guy because he, his mind wasn't there. There was another vascular surgeon. I remember we were trying to recruit out of a local. He was from California, Southern California, wanted to come home. Again, coming into a ready-made practice, he and his wife were visiting. He was in Detroit completing his fellowship. Couldn't wait to get home. Took him to lunch. He loved the opportunity. And his wife says at lunchtime, this is so great. I can't wait for Brian to get here because as soon as he starts, he'll be home every night for dinner and he won't have to work weekends anymore. And I explained to her that actually when he gets here, he'll be working more nights and more weekends. The difference being that now he'll just be getting paid for it versus what he was doing in residency. So... I, I tell you those stories, and I'm sure that each of you face the challenge of millennials. Jill, how is Edison dealing sure. with the lifestyle work balance requirements of the 25 to 35-somethings? Yeah, so I we talk about this a lot, about all the generational differences that we're balancing in our workforce. I think it's also, for us, and I'm sure for my colleagues too, it's really important to understand the changing demographics of our customer. So very soon, millennials are going to be the largest customer group who are electricity customers. And often, they are not only now covering their own electricity costs, but they're supporting aging parents as well. So it's a multiple, you know, if you look at the the decision-making power, the buying power of a generational group, they're becoming and soon will be the largest who matters in in our world. And so when we're looking at Millennials and and the different needs that you see of each kind of each different generation, uh, we look to how do we leverage that group to better understand our own customers instead of trying to focus or spending more of our focus on what's the gap between this worker today and the worker of yesterday coming out of college. We're saying, okay, now we certainly have a group of employees who are much better connected to the way that the largest group of customers are making decisions. So how do we put them into roles where they can help benefit our customers the quickest and understand certainly the best? And then the other area that we focus on too, as I mentioned, we're very mission-driven as an organization. And that's something that we're seeing more and more of workforce coming out of school being connected to a mission. And so we're trying to leverage that and help get that passion from all of the recent graduates and people who are early in their career and actually help infect the rest of the employees with that same amount of passion because it's not just about a contract between you and the employee, the employer and the employee. Now it's about connecting to that mission and the difference that people want to make in the world. And I think we, we are presenting then a, a great value proposition for both employees and customers. So Abigail, how is Parsons trying to... In- increase that infection of teaching millennials to actually want to work. I may sound a little cynical. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I certainly can relate, you know, to, to the stories, not trying to harsh, you know, hire at Parsons, but just kind of walking around my, my daily life where, you know, younger people will ask me, you know, so how did you get to where you are? And, you know, they ask they asked me about my, just my career trajectory and they're like, well, you know, when I get out of college, like next month, I want your job. And I want to make oh, what yeah. you're making, right? And continue dreaming. And it's great. And I love the passion and I love the energy. And I believe, and there, there are in some instances and in some industries where you probably can make more than I'm making because it's, you know, like cybersecurity. And I know one particular colleague out of college, her daughter did get hired 
to, and is making like $400,000 a year, right? Cyber. So I pray my 14-year-old daughter does that so she can pay my electricity bill. <laughs> but, but, That's certainly the exception, not the rule. <laughs> right. But, you know, at, at Parsons, what we're looking at, you know, I was raised by baby boomer parents who I love and adore. And my father was a very, like, he adopted Facebook before I even knew it existed, right? And my mom just didn't care for the technology. And I think that the challenge is going to be, or the gap is that millennials bring in fresh ideas and fresh technology and live in the Google Docs, Snapchat, TikTok, quick, fast information, data analytics, you know, they'll run. I mean, my, my daughter at third grade was putting together PowerPoints. So the speed of where they're learning and what they're doing and the technology that's being embedded in the schools from a very early age, you're going to have millennials that will outpace us when they come to the workforce. So how are we ready for learning and accepting those new trends and ways and technologies? And also how are our baby boomers, like my parents, are going to be adopters of things, right? I've had a, a couple colleagues that just refuse to add Uber as their app to travel. They want a private driver that they can give cash to and have cash receipts that they still write on. But our, you know, expense system is electronic. And so while I admire, you know, the organization and the structure and their ability, we've moved to a different technology where Uber or Lyft now syncs electronically to your expense report. And you don't even have to carry a receipt. Just check, check, check why I went there, what's up, and done. So I think that being able to appreciate the good of, all the age or, you know, all the eras, all the generations, and being able to put those together is going to be our challenge to be open-minded and to accept, you know, and to work together. But we can have a chuckle along the way. So, Lindsay, before we leave millennials, what opportunities are there or resources that we could apply that you see to better ingrain and better prepare millennials for the reality that they're not going to get hired as the CEO of American Airlines in their first job? (laughs) Yeah, I agree with my colleagues. I think that what we all need to embrace is that the workplace has shifted. And so how can we embrace millennials, their fresh ideas, their innovation, what they're able to bring to teams, how they're able to connect with your potential customers, while also providing that mentorship and guidance that comes from maybe the the older employees at the company. And so I think it's being able to manage on both sides of being able to say, well, what are the different things that young people are able to bring? What is, what is our older workforce able to bring? How can we pair them together so that when somebody says that they want your job is that that's an opportunity to provide professional development. It's an opportunity to create mentorship and that creates the next leader within your company. And that I, to me provides the longevity of where you're able to go long-term because now all of a sudden I have your knowledge and wisdom that you've had within the workforce for the last 10, 20 years, but then also the fresh new ideas that I'm having access to technology and learning from my peers and things that are moving really quickly, that makes a dynamic and a fierce leader. And so I think being able to bring those things together is where we're going and what companies need to embrace versus like, oh, well, these millennials, I know we all laugh about it, but it's being able to say, how can we bridge those things together? So in that context... What about us baby boomers? A phenomenon that's occurring as we speak, there's 10,000 baby boomers per day, per day, 
10,000 per day turning 65 years old. And that phenomenon, people talk about that, but they leave out the second half. That phenomenon is supposed to continue for another 11 years. So as large as the anticipated millennial workforce may become at some point soon, there's a lot of boomers in the workforce that are just that are there now and that most of us are not, as much as I aspire to this, are not retiring at 65 years old and falling out and creating that career path for those aspiring boomers. So there's a couple of challenges, I think, that continue to grow each day in how we handle or deal with the, uh, the aging workplace. One is the lifestyle needs of an aging workforce, get, being able to get around, you know, the mobility, the physical mobility of that, the, the stamina issues, the family requirements, things of that nature, the time off because of illness. Because let me tell you, when you get older, you get sick. And then the second piece, which is more, more attuned, I think, with the conversation is succession planning. And that's a challenge for any organization, but one particularly with an aging workforce where you have those aspiring millennials pushing up at the ceiling and the ceiling is just fixed because that supervisor, that VP is going to stay there until he's 70, 75 years old. So, so I, you know, I ask, let's talk about this about at Kaiser. How is that being addressed now with the aging workforce at Kaiser versus the, the younger employees being hired on at mid-level or, or entry-level positions? It's definitely a challenge for us. One of the things is we have an older workforce compared to a lot of organizations. I think the last, it was a, our average age of a worker was 55. That's average age. So we have a lot of people in that category you're talking about who are preparing to retire. I think, you know, we've been trying to up our recruitments on millennials and Gen Z. We've reached out a lot. Part of the workforce development and our talent strategy really is to get in early. So we're actually reaching out to the high school level to start to say, here's what healthcare careers are. It's not just nurse. It's just not doctor. There's sterile processing. There's surgical tech. There's ortho tech. There's pharmacy tech. There's all these different things. These may be of interest to you, and here's how you can get there. And then we have internship programs through inroads and with the L.A. County that looks to bring in summer youth to expose them to health care. So I would say the way that it's really affected us is that our talent strategy has shifted to not just focusing on like recent college graduates, but it's to try to establish a relationship with people in high school and with educators in high school to direct them and to help shuttle people towards healthcare who may be interested in it, expose them to careers they don't know about. One of the things we use, it was really exciting, I shared at a CTE um, symposium was a flyer. Our equity, inclusion, diversity folks said, hey, we went, you know, we're, we're going out, we're meeting with high schools, and we want to know, like, what can we put out? Can you make us a flyer about jobs in healthcare? And I stopped, I paused, and I said, you know, we have four summer youth out there who are high schoolers. How about we ask them? And so they developed this flyer. As any youth would, it has all these links and all these beautiful things. But they wrote the flyer from a perspective of a high schooler. You know, our hope is that that'll resonate more with each of these schools. But I think the other side of that is how do we handle the aging workforce? I laugh. Thank you for not making me answer the the millennial question. My he, team he is all millennials, and they may be watching, so I would have to be extremely nice. Although I will say, one of them sent me an article, and it said, hey, boomer, when are you leaving? And I'm not a boomer. Uh, when are you leaving so I can get promoted? And it was kind of an interesting take. I mean, it was like, they think I'm a boomer. I'm not a boomer. <laughs> but 
it was their kind of mindset. And I think, you know, we have to kind of figure out how that works. But at the same time, you have an aging population and in healthcare, I think there's a role for people who want to be in a, in a less than full-time capacity. And I think that's where our next challenge is, is how do we transition folks who maybe don't want to be, you know, a full-time, overtime nurse but wants to continue to practice in some capacity. And what does that look like? And how do we help them step down towards retirement as they want to? Because healthcare is a shortage industry, and we can't afford to leave any talent left to the side. So we can no longer take the approach of my way or no way. We really have to reinvent ourselves from an employment perspective whether that's with millennials and trying to, you know, I always say you have to explain purpose before you explain the task because they want to know why they're doing it and whether that rises to a level of something impactful that they want to get behind. Or you have, you know, baby boomers who are thinking about retiring but aren't quite sure. They went to spend time with the grandkids but maybe not all the time with the grandkids. And those are two things that employers will struggle with because we're all accustomed to the, what the workday is, the workday is. You're either full-time or you're not time. And we've got to answer those questions. And so I think those are the ways to sum it up there. We're, we're touching high schoolers to make sure we get in early and we start molding the next generation of healthcare workers. But on the other side, I think the challenge is really working with managers so that they can shift their mindset to say, how do I still keep this person in a way that they want to stay and it's mutually beneficial? So, Joe, how about at Edison? How are you keeping millennials engaged while addressing the needs of an aging workforce? Sure. So, like many utilities, I think, across the country, we have about the same number of people who are either at retirement age, five years from retirement age, as we have people who are only five years in the workforce. So, it's become this, like, uh, inver- you know, bell curve where we have a lot of people who are new to the industry, new to the workforce, and then a lot of people who are near or at retirement age. But as you point out, that doesn't necessarily mean they're about to retire. Um, so for us, we definitely are reevaluating job requirements and the career pathing because we recognize that the path that many of our most seasoned and experienced employees took is not the path that the next generation is going to take. They're not going to spend five years as a drafting engineers and then five years as a project manager and then five years as a section manager. You know, they're expecting a lot more speed in the way that they're moving through their career. And that doesn't necessarily mean shooting straight up the ladder, but they want to have new experiences. And I appreciate that. Uh, so what we're looking at is new areas. Like we have a digital accelerator team that didn't exist 10 years ago. And that's how are we using digital technology to make our work more efficient. And so that's an opportunity for us to create new roles with new required experiences that there's not, you know, the, the ceiling of people ahead of you. It's a, it's a brand new area. And I think with data analytics, which, which Abigail mentioned in the beginning, I think that's another area where you don't have 30 years of employees who've been in those jobs before you. These are brand new areas of focus, and those are opportunities for us to attract and retain new talent. I absolutely agree. All right, we've come full circle here. So before we go to questions, let's do one last lightning round here for each of you. We have a lot of educators, as we talked about in the audience today. How might these, your companies and these educators create longer-lasting, close partnerships, more so than just programs that you feed employee, potential employees into or draw from, but partnerships where together actively working with K-12 youth or 
even community college youth or university students to build a pipeline that sends qualified potential employees to your organization. How, do you, how would you envision that down the road or in the future, Abigail? Well, something that I have been observing is that the STEM programs are starting, like you said, as early as not just high school, but now junior high school. And really having an investment in technology, obviously the STEM programs, but specific emphasis in the growing technology piece with artificial intelligence, even in the sixth grade. You know, having that through high school, I think that, you know, there's often a question from educators to say, are we preparing the students to take a job? And it's not that you are or are not preparing the students. It is that back to, I think, Dan's point that everything is changing almost like every two years or even light speed and the rate of information, the rate of uh, what we need, the rate of technology, the rate of process. It's happening so fast that really is about staying on top of it, really engaging whatever your specialty is, right, whether it's healthcare, engineering, and so forth, to have an active conversation. You know, sometimes universities, you know, and I'm not saying this in a, in a, in a bad way, is you want companies to just write a check and then disappear, right? And sometimes it's a check and then, you know, then partnership, I believe that just remaining in conversation about what is going on in the industry. I've sat in rooms where I observe educators just, you know, talking amongst themselves and there are issues that they're addressing within like education. How do we do things structure and so forth, but they forget the practitioner part of it and having that partner come in and engaged on how do you do business how do you do business? How do you do business in this industry? What is there? Just staying constantly active and bringing us, you know, not necessarily, again, with a check or not, but just invite us to come, whether it's a classroom, which I talk to you, whether it's looking at your program as an advisor. I think that that is the way that we can work together to really model and address the needs of millennials and address our retiring boomers community is a whole zipper plan. Excellent. Lindsay, how about the organizations you work with? How can they better partner with both educators and employers? Yeah. Abigail, I think you, you nailed it. I mean, with the work that we're doing as an intermediary to really kind of connect to business to education is that one, realizing that it is a relationship. And so it can't be transactional. It can't be a one-time deal. It's how do you continue to engage? I think what you just touched upon about being able to bring millennials as well as boomers in of being able to have them come in as a guest speaker, have them lead workshops, have them come in and be judges on different panels of projects that you're doing within the classroom, develop those relationships. Because we've noticed that it's like when we are developing the relationships with the 67 different tech and media companies across LA is that that's how we were able to start to um, get them to say, oh, great, we'll take community college students as interns. It was the relationship piece because they had seen the talent in action, developed those relationships with them, and then said, well, great, like, you know, we normally recruit from these colleges, but, you know, we'll work with community college students as well. So I think it's the relationship piece. And then furthermore, I think being able to really provide that same level of engagement, not only for the students, but for yourselves as well, as well as the other faculty, how can you leverage advisory boards and have people come in and share what's happening right now in industry? Because what's happening right now in industry, even if we sat here and we're all telling you exactly what's happening at our particular companies is that 
by the time you train job seekers for that, it's going to have changed. So it's not what's happening now, but even being able to pre to prepare for those future trends. And as we're here kind of talking about the future of work, I think it's really spot on to say for us as professionals, as faculty, as deans, to be also engaging in that type of learning so that then we're able to pass that on to the students and talent that are looking to get into these career Absolutely. fields. Jill, your turn. I'll just build on what Abigail and Lindsay said and to say traditionally the relationship between a company and an education organization is through the HR department or the recruiting department. And in our case, there's 12,000 people and only a few hundred work in HR. We should look at all of the employees as the potential avenues to build those relationships with. So at Edison, we have employee resource groups that focus on different areas that matter to our workforce. So we have a women's roundtable that focuses on getting more gender balance in our leadership. We have a Latino, a South Asian, we have LGBTQ, we have all different organizational groups that are focusing on diversity areas and other technical areas that matter to the company. Those are great resources, I think, to do exactly what, what Lindsay and Abigail just suggested. Be on advisory boards, come in as guest speakers, speak at a career day. Don't only focus on leveraging the relationship with the person who has recruiter on their business card because their time is very limited There's and there's very few of them. But the number of avenues into the company is as large as the number of employees. All right, Diane, I know you're last. You can just say, I agree with Jill, Lindsay, and Abigail if you want, but, um, or add something. No, I'll, I'll add something. I, I, I do agree with everything that's been said. I think the challenge that we have as an employer in building a relationship with you know public schools, meaning the community colleges and four-year universities is the rigidness. And I think that's one of the things that I will lay as a challenge as we wrap up here is to say, how do you be less rigid? And it's not for me, right? I'm, I'll be the first to say this campus, this college, community college system, the four-year university, it was built for me. And you can take a moment and think about that. It was built for me. It wasn't built for the kid in South LA. It wasn't built for the little Latino kid in Riverside. And that's the challenge. There are people, yes, we have diverse students coming through. Everybody starts somewhere. And who are the biggest populations represented there? White and Asian. So I'll take it down to what I really am trying to say. When I say meet people where they're at, we go into low-income communities and we talk to people who are going to go into CTE programs. See the dean, there's an emphasis on CTE here. She's talking about expanding it. And the assemblyman was talking about the legislation for transfer of credits from two-year college to four-year college. You forgot the little guy. The person who can least afford it is going to go in a CTE program. Not because they don't have dreams of being a physician or being a nurse. It's their life situation didn't leave them there. And so the challenge that I lay is to let's look at policies that Give transfer credit from a CTE program to a two-year degree program that then can transfer to a four-year degree program. Because I talk with a lot of medical assistants as one. We've been, I told you about the sterile processing. We're getting ready to build on a medical assistant on apprenticeship. But we also want to take medical assistants to LVNs. And you know the number one challenge is everybody wants them to start over. The economy's changed, the workplace has changed, and our schools have to change with it. 
And when I say that, it's really with the greatest appreciation. I wouldn't be where I am without public school and also having to been to a four-year university. But when I listen and I watch the workforce and I talk to people and I say, why don't you want to take part? We have two trust funds, each with tens of millions of dollars in it to help develop people. And we'll say, and that's in addition to tuition reimbursement where they could have their education paid for. And we'll say, we pay for everything. You can be an LVN. We'll send you, I don't want to start over again. I can't start over again are the responses we hear. Because we've built something where a career means you go, you go to school, you get a job. If you're fortunate, it'll take you 30 years, you 40 years, you retire. But what we see is people are continually displaced. That's the economy we live in. People, whether they like it or not, will have three or four jobs over their lifespan. And if we can build on it, if you're an MA who can become an LVN because there's transferability, and mind you, the reason I use this as a teaching point is the scope of practice for an MA and an LVN is almost identical with very few exceptions. Yet if you're an MA with 10 years of experience and you want to be an LVN, we tell you get back to the very beginning and start all over again. Because what you've been doing the last 10 years is kind of not really important. And I think we owe it to every worker to optimize their skills. And I think those are two things. Jesse, I told him I would say something provocative. That's it. The challenge is, let's find out how we do the policy changes to do transferability for CTE programs so that people aren't walking down a path to face the gorge and ask to build a bridge to get across to the other side. Here, here. All right. Thank you to these terrific panelists. Let's give them one more well-earned round of applause. Questions? Hi. So my name is Marina Gonzalez. I'm a, I'm a counselor here. And you all kind of addressed it, but maybe if you, if you have anything additional to say, I'd be really interested in hearing. What do you see as working well at community colleges and at even some of the universities here locally that you'd like to see more of? Whether it's kind of small-scale things that are happening that you think, oh, like I'd like to you know, see more of that or some large-scale things like programs so that our students can you know, have better opportunities in all these different areas. I think that we were speaking a lot about CTE and being able to have the career pathways programs. I think specifically for the work that we're doing, those are working really well of being able to integrate work-based learning. And so that job seekers or talent have those experiential learning opportunities that are happening concurrent to their education. So that to the point when they are ready to enter into the workforce or they're going back to the workforce, they have applicable experience, specifically in the tech industry, that while a a lot of the work we're focused on is that entry-level positions, but we see a lot of people who are going to community college to get certificates to enter back into the workforce because there are jobs like cybersecurity that are paying a lot higher wages. And so being able to mirror that with what they're actually learning in the classroom and then being able to partner that with an employer is something that I've seen be really instrumental for then also talent to actually get hired. And then additionally, I think a lot of the conversations that we're having too right now are around apprenticeships and starting to look at that as a way into companies so that when you have talent, you, you're learning and being able to have some of those skills learning on the job that then kind of is set up for you to be able to take on that position. Other questions? On our live stream, we had a question, a few questions up here, but one of them was, 
given your existing training programs, the question was to the employers on the panel, how do career tech programs and our adult ed programs integrate with your existing trainings, not necessarily creating new ones? What's the best way to do that? At LAX, Parsons has created a program called Hire LAX. It includes people from the reentry community and adult community, people with or without education formally, and it serves zip codes within the LAX area. It's called Higher LAX. We've graduated our third class this month, and though mighty 55 graduates, you know, the applicants usually come in for 300 people, and again, it's about showing up, right? It's about, about showing up and then also having a very concentrated group where we don't lose the quality of the education and the training as an apprenticeship that's being provided. And so this program takes the applicant through the process from registration all the way through graduation. They learn a trade. They learn whether it's an electrical worker or carpentry. They work with the unions. And once they've completed the program, it's about six weeks, once they've completed the program, they are immediately placed in a high-paying job. And that job, and I've heard testimonies directly from people benefiting from that training, has taken you know a single mom from being able to provide for her kids, from not being able to maybe have health insurance and not having benefit and enough money to pay for a space or, you know, rent for a space that they needed. It's completely changed their lives. So I think that, you know, you touched on apprenticeships earlier, Lindsay, and I think that um, we do have to make sure that we provide apprenticeships and learning experience and entry into our workforce for adults and continuing education. I think Dan touched on that as well. One more question over here. Since we're talking about the future of work, uh, and I've heard some of you talk about jobs uh, that were created that had not existed before, as a community college and or training places, how can we best prepare our students, get some kind of training for jobs that don't exist? I mean, what, what would you see as sort of a, a baseline for all of them when perhaps they're going into a two-year certificate program and they haven't graduated yet, but hopefully that job will still be there? Or if not, how can they take what they've learned to transition into those new jobs? I think about, you know, when I very first heard about AR and VR, so augmented reality and virtual reality, and how that's going to completely shift. You start to talk about, like, how that can be used, like, in healthcare or in in other industries, but being able to understand what are the fundamental basics that are needed to understand maybe some of these new technologies and build upon what talent is already learning and being able to add those two or three additional pieces to take it up a notch to be able to say this is how it can be applicable within your particular industry. So I think, again, it's not necessarily going back and changing things, but it's being able to be in that constant communication of like, what are the skills that are needed to now help come in and support a team in that role? And I think it's being able to have some of those basic skills and then being able to learn on the job within those team environments. I'll just add quickly that it's also look at kind of to the foundations because a lot of these jobs that are new, 
science itself is still the same. And so we are hiring today a lot of climate scientists. That that job title didn't exist when I was in school, but earth science existed when I was in school, and it's pretty similar. You know, data analytics is another one. You know, now you can get a data science degree, which you couldn't in the past, but you used to be able to get a degree in statistics, and a lot of that is similar. So just like help translate what you've already invested in and what people who may be mid-career have themselves already invested in and help people bridge to what are we calling it now because it's not 100% different. It's probably 15% different. And I think that there's a lot we can do to help connect people. So we're not asking everybody to start over. And to the view of the educator, we're not asking you to create something brand new all of the time. Hi, everyone. My name is Alan, and I work at Computer Learning Center here at PCC. Since we're talking about creating new jobs, do you have any job opportunities for artists or in creative people? Because I feel like each workforce needs creative people. We can bring our creativity and, and we are here to change the world. Are you planning to have any type of job opportunities for artists? Like you mentioned, um, Mr. Donald, that you know, you you needed a flyer, you talked to the high school students, but are you planning to have any, like, department, like, art department in your company? We, we do today already. In fact, we have artists who are full-time working on creative material because we're trying to communicate to 15 million people who use our product, and we have to reach them in a way that they're going to understand. And so a lot of that has to do with user experience. We have people who have a creative background who are designing websites, who are designing apps, who design the billboards that you drive by, who are picking the colors and picking the fonts and all of those things itself is its own skill and science in a lot of ways. And it's not something that we learned as engineers. And so there are many people who currently work for our organization and and any company that's like ours that have creative degrees. Thank you. One last thing. I love your question. So we have our corporate like services, which is graphic design and so forth. But we also, you know, there's internal communication, external communication, design, presentations. We also have, you know, just for our proposals and any marketing or postings, but we also use AR and VR just as Lindsay mentioned, the virtual reality and augmented reality, sometimes to show our clients what a project, a completed project will look like, or to go to a community meeting and show the community how a project might also look like. So people who can fly drones, people who understand gaming and coding, because that gaming and coding is using that VR, AR to create that virtual and augmented reality to test and to create, you know, and to collect data based on that, that helps us. So I love your question. Definitely, I think engineering is a, a science and an art, and, with, and we need artists. They make us look good. So thanks. Thank you. With that, I hope you all found this discussion somewhat enlightening today. Thank you all for attending. Thank you again to our panelists. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear from you too. Leave us your thoughts and review and remember to rate us. Thanks for listening.